You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together and to um, uh, have a, a little bit of a laugh. I, I'm always uh, touched by the humor of Bishop Sheen. He seems to uh, make us all smile uh, through his presentations. And um, although there is a seriousness to his talks, uh, he still, of course, uh, warmed up the audience, I like to say, uh, before, of course, delivering those powerful messages. Uh, today we're going to share uh, two reflections. The first is entitled, Woman at the Well, and of course that was from his television broadcast in the 50s, uh, Life is Worth Living, and we're going to continue our uh, lesson on the Catechism series, and today's talk is on purgatory, and so I've always, I'm always needing to brush up on my talk on purgatory, because I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people ask about the Catholic faith, like, why do you believe in purgatory? And so Bishop Sheen is going to give us the answers. And so let us uh, begin, as we always do, uh, with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now this presentation entitled, Woman at the Well. Friends, in the garden of every heart goes on a great struggle, and only the soul and God know about it. As planet affects planet, and as the moon in some way changes all the surging tides of the world. So too are we under the influence of another world and a divine influence. Tonight I'm going to tell you the story of a struggle that went on in a soul, one of the most beautiful stories ever written. It is not a story. It is really an historical incident. It is about the woman at the well. First, the place. I wish I could draw even maps 
But this is supposed to be a map. Now this is the country here, what is known as Galilee. And here is Lake Genesareth. Do you know what that means? Genesareth Park. I could think of a lot of good cracks about that, but I won't say them. In here is Samaria. And down here is Judea. Here's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem here. Judea is about the size of Connecticut. Samaria is the size of Rhode Island. And Galilee is much smaller than Connecticut. That's the extent of Palestine, where this scene took place. Now, you've often heard about the Good Samaritans. It's well to understand something about the history of the Samaritans. In the year 722 B.C., Assyria moved in what is known as Palestine, and they took out a number of Samaritans back into Assyria, and they also intermingled some of their own Assyrian people with the people of Samaria, and they produced a hybrid race, half Jewish, half Assyrian. They accepted some of the Jewish books. They accepted, for example, the Pentateuch of Moses. They did not accept, however, the prophets. There was considerable enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans had their own temple here at Mount Gerasim. And uh, there was some reason for the strained feelings on either side. For example, the Samaritans would very often throw human bones into the temple of Jerusalem in order to stop the offering of the religious rites. And the Jews, for that reason, never liked to pass through Samaria when they went to Galilee. And the Jews would light beacon fires on hilltops in order to let their own people know in another country about the celebration of certain feasts, you know what the Samaritans would do? They would light the fires two or three days ahead in order to confuse the Jews. Now one day, our blessed Lord is on his way from Judea to Galilee, but he does not avoid those people. He passes right through, and he comes here near the village of Sechoch, and sits down at a well. He's tired. We have a Latin poem that reads, Quarens may thigisi losses, seeking me thou didst become weary and exhausted. And he was not weary from work, he was just weary in his work. The time was noon. And while he's seated there at a well, a woman comes to draw water at the well. Perhaps you might be interested, would you, in seeing the way Doré represented it. I shall ask one of the cameras uh, now to show you uh, Doré's presentation of our Lord and the woman at the well. Now, our blessed Lord said to the woman, 
Give me to drink. Whenever he wishes to confer a favor, he always asks for one. Here is divine innocence dealing with a woman whom we will discover to be a great sinner. And what is his method and approach to that soul? He finds a common denominator of conversation. It's human necessity. He had to go down deep to find anything in common between them, but there was still something common, namely a love of cold water in the middle of a hot day. What a lesson for our missionaries. Never to think that the religion of any people in the world is intrinsically wrong. Buddhism and Confucianism, Hinduism, and the other world religions are good religions in the natural order. They can be used as a starting point for leading men to the divine. As he started here with just a drink. When he said, give me to drink, she said, how is it that thou a Jew ask me a Samaritan for a drink? Prejudice. How often the inherited bigotry of people, as in this case that of the Samaritan woman, blinds them to light. Our blessed Lord answered her and said, If you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you the fountain of living waters. If you knew education, blot out that ignorance which is associated with prejudice. If you knew, you would ask. When there's knowledge, there is desire. Without knowledge, there never can be desire. And he would give you a fountain of living waters. It would be a gift, something to which man was not entitled by nature. Here he is using, as you see, the analogy of nature in order to convey a great spiritual truth. He asked, the divine and the eternal is too much beyond us. And for our poor finite minds, he asked to speak in terms, for example, of water, in order to convey the idea of some great spiritual reality, but she does not understand it. That was natural, too. When people are carnal, when they are materialistic, and you suggest a spiritual truth to them, it is like teaching color to the blind. They cannot see it. And she did not understand it when he spoke of the fountain of living waters, and she said, This well is deep. And thou hast not wherewith to draw. She was almost making fun of him. Man's wisdom, God's folly. She was saying, you say you can give me the fountain of living waters and you have not a citula. 
one of these goat skins with three sticks at the top that is let down with the hair of a goat into this well, which is 150 feet deep. You have no bucket. How can you give me the fountain of living waters? And then she began to chide him, and she said, Are you greater than Abraham, who gave us this well? Our father Jacob, who drank here, and his children, and his cattle? And the stranger at the well answered, All those who drink of this water will thirst again. But he who will drink of the water which I will give will never thirst. For it will cause in him a flowing fountain of waters unto life everlasting. Here our Lord contrasts earthly pleasures and the pleasures of the Spirit. He's saying that all of the earthly joys have to be repeated. They depend upon the outside. You have to go back again in order to enjoy your pleasure. But the real fountain that I will give will be from the inside and as water rises no higher than its source, if your pleasures of the earth, they will always be earthly. But the fountain that I give comes from heaven. And once it is in your soul, it causes some sweet impulsion which drives you back to heaven again. She seemed to understand it dimly, and she said, Well, give me to drink of this water that I may never thirst again and may never have to come here to draw. Now that our Lord had drawn from her this expression of desire, we come to a kind of a change in his method and his approach. And what a change it was. The conversation seems to be broken rather abruptly. He now said to her, Go tell your husband. Why did he do this? He, the divine searcher of hearts, knew her heart and knew her life and every breath that she drew. And he wanted to bring home to her that before this fountain could ever spring forth, that the sediment and the dirt and the rocks and the clay had to be dug away. He was laying his finger upon her behavior and reminding her that before she could come to an understanding of that to which he spoke, she would have to change her conduct. And when he said, 
Go tell your husband. She's dead. I have no husband. And our Lord answered. Thou hast spoken truly. Thou hast no husband. For thou hast five. Five. And he with whom thou livest now is not thy husband. See how he commended her? It was a poor confession. And instead of condemning and berating the poor soul, he even found a way of taking her expression and making it true and saying, Thou hast said truly, thou hast no husband. You can understand this is a delicate situation which she's in. How would you like to be someday at a conference? Somebody come along and make a statement of that kind to you. What would you do? You would do just exactly what she did. You know what she did? It's not only the women that would do it. Every man would do the same thing. I would do the same thing if the good Lord caught me that way. She changed the subject. And she said, uh, I see that thou art a prophet. But she's not concerned about this prophecy about her husband's and her immoral life. She's much more concerned now about this subject, where shall we worship? And she says within herself, now if he knows I've got two husbands, she can answer this question between us and the Jews. Where are we going to worship? And so she asks him, do we worship here on Mount Gerizim as we do, or in Jerusalem? Our Lord said, neither. God is spirit. The hour is coming when the true adorers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It is not the place that matters. It is your understanding of God. We'll adore the Father, not power, not space-time entity, but a Father. And if God is a Father, then we could be His sons. Then there never could be this vague brotherhood of which men speak without the fatherhood of God. Adore the Father in spirit and in truth. In truth. In a minute he will be saying that he is the truth.
he did on one occasion exactly say, I am the truth. And then the spirit. He said he would send his spirit. And that he would not be just an example to be copied. Then when one had his spirit, he would be a veritable life to be lived. And all those who were looking for the unity of religion then must not start whistling away the great divine truths. Rather, as he said, let them start at the top. Get the right understanding of God, and then you will be one. And when he said, the hour is coming, she said, I know the Christ is coming. And when he is coming, he will teach us all things. Can you imagine the surprise of that woman when this chance passerby at the well said to her, I am he. All the longings of thousands of years, the Greek poets, Dramatist, Virgil, Sophocles, Buddha, Confucius, the books of Moses, all of them were pointing to this hour. And he said, I am he. I am the teacher, I am the truth, I am the son of that father. So amazed at what she hears, she runs into the city and leaves her water pot at the well. Why? Maybe she forgot it. Maybe she left it as a symbol that she no longer wanted earthly waters. And now we come to an interesting part of the story. Why was that woman there at noon drawing water? Nobody ever goes in a hot country to a well at noon. They always go in the morning, they go at night. Why did she go at noon? Because she was that kind of a woman. She was a public woman. And the other women would not allow her to come. Now, it gets it. She goes into the city. Whom do you think she tells? She tells the man. She gets even with the catty, gossipy women. She's found the teacher, and she tells only the boyfriends. Can't you imagine? Imagine this particular woman coming out of the city, and trailing behind her the men of Samaria. And she's leading them now along right ways, as she once had led them along evil ways. There's evidence in the gospel for the fact that she told only the men. And they turned out to be rather an ungrateful lot, too. Because they finally said to her, We believe now. And not because you told us. Because we have seen with our own eyes, and we have heard with our own ears. 
And they were all so happy. But it turned out the townspeople were happy, men and women alike. And these people invited him into their own village. And out of that village came for the first time in the hearing of the world the great title, the title that he bears preeminently, the title that was given by the woman at the well and the men and women of the city, the glorious title, Savior of the world. Love never betrays anyone. But sometimes people betray love. Be loyal to love. Love of neighbor. Love of your country. Love of God. Bye now. God bless. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this edition of Your Life is Worth Living. And I want to, of course, uh, thank everyone who has been so generous over the years uh, with your financial gifts to help us here at Radio Maria Canada to do what we do. Uh, we are uh, a mercy-driven apostolate, and I say mercy-driven in that we love to, of course, extend God's mercy and share his love with the world, uh, of course, but uh, it is you being merciful to us, of course, thinking about us in your offerings and praying for us and sending us uh, donations from time to time. So we would ask you to keep doing what you're doing. Our bills keep coming in every month. It's funny, they never miss the gas bill, the hydro bill, the electric bill. Uh, but, of course, we need to send out this signal, of course, uh, over the airwaves and the Internet um, uh, everywhere that uh, can uh, receive this message. We want to send it to them, and so we need your help. And so please, uh, 
again, just uh, continue to do what you're doing. And uh, God love you for it. Now, we're going to, uh, of course, continue our catechism series. We're really, we're moving along here. This is awesome. I mean, we're on lesson number 45, and uh, there's a 50-lesson series here. And so uh, we're almost in the home stretch. And so uh, last week, uh, Bishop Sheen talked about death and judgment. And so this year, not this year, but this, this program, he's going to be talking about purgatory. And uh, again, I, I'm so thankful that the church, uh, in her, her wisdom, uh, have really shared this great um, teaching on purgatory, and it is true. And uh, God, again, God's mercy that he wants to give us every opportunity to get to heaven, to be with him forever in paradise. And we may have to spend a few years there to work everything out. So, But in his mercy, he's created a place so that we can be with him for all eternity. So uh, we are blessed. So let us now sit back and relax and enjoy uh, Bishop Sheen's reflection on the subject of purgatory. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. I wonder if you ever heard the story of a monk who did not get up for meditation each morning. He would sleep until it was about time for him to say his mass. The superior called him in and said, You must get out of bed every morning at 4.30 and come down for your hour meditation before mass. The monk said, I find it very hard to get up. The superior said to him, Well, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you imagine that you're in purgatory and the flames of purgatory are enveloping you and you will immediately bound out and come down for meditation. Well, the next morning, he was late as usual. The superior called him in and asked, Did you do what I told you to do? Yes, he said, I did. But I loved purgatory. Well, that is our subject. We will see how you like it. Once I visited a man in a hospital who had led a very miserable life through alcoholism, infidelity, and other gross sins. He had made his wife very unhappy, his children ashamed of his conduct, and the whole family impoverished. But on his deathbed, we reconciled him to God. And he said to me, I will not be here much longer. I have no doubt that God has forgiven my sins. But I am ready for that strafing which I know I shall get and deserve. Notice the distinction that he made between peace and pain. He was at peace because his sins were forgiven. And yet he knew that he had not fully atoned for all of his sins. He distinguished between forgiveness and making up for the sins. Just as the thief did on the left-hand side of our Lord, or rather the right-hand side of our blessed Lord, our Lord assured him of paradise. And yet, he continued to suffer. And while he was hanging there, that thief said, we suffer the due reward of our deeds. 
It is one thing to be forgiven. It is quite another thing to expiate for that sin. If you ever visited the great diamond mines such as Kimberley and saw the diamonds there in the raw, you would be disappointed because they look so dull and so full of flaws. Each and every one of them would have to be cut and then polished. And if the diamonds were conscious, it would be rather a painful process. And it would have to be done, too, by an expert. Our purgatory is like that. It is a means of reaching excellence. It is a means of achieving a perfection that otherwise would never be known. It is something like a dark room or a photographic film. When the film is taken into the dark room. It is treated with burning acids that all of the hidden color and beauty may be revealed. Purgatory is some such place as that. The judgment of God is final, but still there is a merciful chance to be cleansed of the remains of sin by those who die in the state of grace, but have not yet atoned for all the punishment due to sins. For example, we're forgiven for having stolen and yet never returned the stolen goods. Most of us are not ready to go before the judgment seat of God. Look at how many undone duties there are in our lives. Loose ends. Muddling through responsibilities. Wrong turns retraced and then taken again lightly. Opportunities missed. Intentions were good and not wholly carried into act. Most of our good intentions actually were only on the thin upper surface of our soul. They did not always sink down into the very depths of our being. And God, therefore, will not sentence such souls to eternal loss. And that is why there was a provision made for making up for our failings if we die in the state of grace. After death, hence we read in the book of the Maccabees that it is a pious, holy thought to pray for the dead that they may be released from their sins. Our blessed Lord himself spoke of forgiveness in the world to come. Remember the parable of the debtor's prison from which there was no release until the debt is paid? That implied a release from debts in another life. Furthermore, St. Paul says that man has imposed very poor materials on the foundations which were laid by Christ. And these materials must all be tried by fire. Now, what is purgatory? It is that place in which the love of God tempers the justice of God. And secondly where the love of man tempers the injustice of man. In other words, we want to show you how very reasonable it is. First of all, we say that purgatory is where the love of God tempers the justice of God. 
The necessity of purgatory is grounded upon the absolute purity of God. In the book of the Apocalypse, we read of the great beauty of his city, of its pure gold, with its walls of jasper and its spotless light, which is not of the sun nor moon, but the light of the Lamb slain, as it were, from the beginning of the world. We also learn of the condition of entering into the gates of that heavenly Jerusalem. As the holy book puts it, there shall not enter into it anything defiled or that worketh abomination or that maketh a lie. But they that are written in the book of the life of the Lamb. So justice demands then that nothing unclean but only the pure of heart shall stand before the face of the pure God. Now suppose there were no purgatory. The justice of God would be too terrible for words. Who of us would dare assert that at the moment of death we were pure enough and spotless enough to stand before the Immaculate Lamb of God. Do you think you could say it? I know I cannot. Oh, there are some, yes, like the martyrs who sprinkle the sands of the Colosseum with their blood in testimony of their faith. The missionaries like Paul who spend themselves and are spent for the spread of the gospel. Cloistered saints who in the quiet calm of a voluntary calvary become martyrs without recognition. Souls like that, yes. But these are glorious exceptions. How many millions there are who die with their souls stained with venial sin who have known evil and by their strong resolve have drawn from it only to carry with them the weakness of their past as a leaden weight. The day that we were baptized, the church laid upon us a white garment, saying, Receive this white garment which mayest thou carry without stain." before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou mayest have life everlasting. Have you kept your garment unspotted and unsoiled by sin? Have any of us? And have we kept the garment so clean that we could in justice say we deserve to enter the white-robed army of the King of Kings? How many souls departing this life have the courage to say that they left it without any undue attachment to creatures? That they were never guilty of a wasted talent, a slight cupidity, an uncharitable deed, a neglect of holy inspiration, or even an idle word for which every one of us must render an account? How many souls there are gathered in at the deathbed like late-season flowers that are absolved from sins but not from the debt of sin. 
Take any of our national heroes, whose names we venerate and whose deeds we emulate. Would any Englishman or American who knew something of the purity of God, as much as he loves and respects, for example, a Nelson or a Washington, believe that either of them at death was free enough from slight faults to enter immediately into the presence of God? Why, the very nationalism of a Nelson and of a Washington, which made them both heroes in war, might in a way make them suspect a being unsuited after death for that true internationalism of heaven where there is neither English nor American, Jew nor Greek, barbarian nor free, but where all are one in Christ Jesus our Lord. All these souls who die with some love of God possessing them are beautiful souls. But if there's no purgatory, then because of slight imperfections, they must be rejected without pity by divine justice. Take away purgatory. And God could not pardon so easily. For will an act of contrition at the edge of the tomb atone for thirty years of sinning? Take away purgatory. And the infinite justice of God would surely reject from heaven those who resolve to pay their debts but have not paid even to the last farthing? That is why I say purgatory is where the love of God tempers the justice of God. For there God pardons because he gives time to retouch these souls with his cross, to recut them with the chisel of purification, that they might fit into the great spiritual edifice of the heavenly Jerusalem, where he plunges them into purifying places where they might wash their stained baptismal robes to enter into the spotless purity of heaven. A place where he can resurrect them like the phoenix of old from the ashes of their own suffering so that like wounded eagles healed by the magic touch of God's cleansing flames, they might mount heavenward to the city of the pure where Christ is king, Mary is queen, for regardless of how trivial the fault, God does not pardon without tears. And there are no tears in heaven. Now we consider the other proposition. Purgatory is a place not only where the love of God tempers the justice of God, but where the love of man may temper the injustice of man. I believe that most men and women are quite unconscious of the injustice and the ingratitude and the thanklessness of their lives 
until they see the cold hand of death laid upon someone they love. It is then and only then they realize. And oh, with what regret. The haunting poverty of their love. One of the reasons why the bitterest of tears are shed over graves is because of words left unsaid. And deeds left undone. The child never knew how much I loved her. He never knew how much he meant to me. I never knew how dear he was until he was gone. Such words are the poisoned arrows which cruel death shoots at our hearts from the door of every sepulcher. Oh, then we realize how differently we would have acted if only the departed one could come back. Tears are shed in vain before eyes which cannot see. Caresses are offered without response to arms that cannot embrace. And sighs stir not a heart whose ear is deaf. Oh, then the anguish for not offering flowers before death had come. And for not sprinkling the incense while the beloved was still alive and for not speaking kind words that now must die on the very air they cleave. Oh, the sorrow at the thought that we cannot atone for the stinted affection we gave them, for the light answers we returned to their pleading, and for the lack of reverence we showed to one who was perhaps the dearest thing that God ever gave us to know. But too late. does little good to water last year's crop, to snare the bird that has flown, or to gather the rose that has withered and died. Purgatory, therefore, is the place where the love of God tempers the justice of God, but also where the love of man tempers the injustice of man, for it enables hearts who are left behind to break the barriers of time and death to convert unspoken words into prayers, unburned incense into sacrifice, unoffered flowers into alms, and undone acts of kindness into help for eternal life. Take away purgatory, and how bitter would be the grief for our unkindness, and how piercing our sorrow for our forgetfulness. Take away purgatory, and how empty are our wreaths, our bowed heads, our moments of silence. But if there be a purgatory... Then immediately the bowed head gives way to a bent knee. The moment of silence turns to a moment of prayer and the fading wreath to the abiding offering of sacrifice in the mass of that great hero of heroes, which is Christ. Purgatory then enables us to atone for our ingratitude because through our prayers, mortifications, and sacrifices, 
It makes it possible to bring joy and consolation to the ones we love. Love is stronger than death, and hence there should be love for those who have gone before us. Shall death cut off gratitude? Certainly not. The Church assures us that not being able to give more to them in this world since they are not of it, we can still seek them out in the hands of divine justice and give them the assurance of our love and the purchasing price of our redemption. Just as the man who dies in debt has the maledictions of his creditors following him to the grave, but he may have his good name restored and revered by the labor of his son who pays the last penny. And so too the soul of a friend who has gone to death owing a debt of penance to God may have it remitted by us who are left behind by mitting the coin of daily actions into the spiritual coin which purchases redemption by praying for these poor souls in purgatory. They suffer, yes. They can no longer gain merit. They're like an automobile that has run out of gasoline. So they must passively undergo some kind of purification. In purgatory we love, and because we love, we are happy. Because that suffering brings us closer to divine love. Now the fires of purgatory are the fires that burn away dross. And when therefore a soul is completely purified, there's nothing left to be consumed. Then it just naturally, because it's pure, goes before the judgment. Not the judgment seat, but rather the throne of God himself. There is no sense of pain when perfect love is eventually Now, what this suffering of the poor souls in purgatory is like is rather difficult for us to imagine. It is kind of dual. On the one hand, it is a suffering because we are separated from God. And on the other hand, it is a suffering because we're so anxious to be with him. Perhaps no one has ever put this better and Cardinal Newman. In the dream of Geronsius, he wrote, Learn that the flame of everlasting love doth burn ere it transform. When then give such thy lot, thou seest thy judge the sight of him will kindle in thy heart all tender, gracious, reverential thoughts. Thou wilt be sick with love and yearn for him. That one so sweet should ever have placed himself at disadvantage such as to be used so vilely by a being so vile as thee. And thou wilt hate and loathe thyself. For though 
now sinless. Thou wilt feel that thou hast sinned as never thou didst feel. And wilt desire to slink away and hide thee from his sight. And yet, wilt have a longing I to dwell within the beauty of his countenance. And these two pains, so counter and so keen, the longing for him when thou seest him not, the shame of self at thought of seeing him will be thy various, sharpest purgatory. God. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the master preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit FultonSheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, another hour has gone by and it goes so quickly with uh, this uh, uh, master teacher, Bishop Sheen. Uh, I could listen to him for hours and hours and hours on end and I'm sure you feel the same way. And so I ask you to invite a friend next week. And until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.